I don't know how it is at your house, but I know that all across America this morning there were little children running through their houses frantically seeking baskets filled with colored paper, you know, that shredded colored grass they call it. I've never seen grass. It was purple and pink and orange, but that's the kind of stuff that was in the basket filled with candy, wasn't it? I mean, there are in many houses across America today, there are eggs everywhere. There are hard-boiled eggs, and they're all colored with all sorts of fancy decorations, and they're beautiful. You look in these baskets, and the baskets are going to be filled with chocolate bunnies. There are chocolate eggs and chocolate pretty much anything else that your mind can imagine. And as those people were preparing for service for Easter all across America today, there were families that were dressing up in their new brightly colored clothes and flashy ties, and those people who typically wear black now are wearing colorful clothes today. And after church today, if your family is anything like mine, you're probably going to hurry home and you're going to have some delicious ham and you're going to probably have some potatoes and some vegetables. And with any luck, you're going to have some form of cheesecake or something is my hope. But all of this we do, and you know why we do that? Because today, as you know, is what? It's Easter, isn't it? Today is Easter. And this is how we celebrate Easter in America. This is what we do in America when we celebrate Easter. And so I thought about it. You know, and if you think about it, I mean, what is Easter after all? And I bet if I were to ask each and every single one of you, each of you could certainly answer that question by saying, well, Easter is the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. Isn't that how you would answer it? I mean, that's the textbook answer. It's the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And that's exactly right. That's exactly what Easter is. But... As you may expect, as I was preparing for Easter this morning, I spent a little time reading my Bible, which is probably a good thing for me to do in preparation for service this morning. And as I was reading my Bible, I was going through the gospel accounts of the celebration of Easter. I was going through the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as I was in my reading, I was looking very, very closely. And you may be surprised to know that as I went through the four gospels, I never once saw any reference to baskets filled with colored shavings. And in all of the pages of the Gospels, I found absolutely no reference to any form of chocolate. I found no reference to any brightly colored clothing. I found no reference to any eggs that were in baskets. And (laughs) would you believe I didn't even find any reference to little bunnies that lay chicken's eggs through all the pages of Scripture. So I looked closely. And you know what I did find? As I was reading through the Gospels, what I actually found was I found that Jesus was risen from the dead. That was the message of the Easter story in the Gospels, that Jesus had risen from the dead. It said that he had been resurrected. And as I was in the book of Matthew, I found it in chapter 28. When I was in the book of Mark, I found it in chapter 16. I made my way to Luke and I found it in chapter 24. And as I was reading through John, I saw that he shared the narrative in chapter 20. So all four of the Gospels make reference that today, is a celebration of the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. All four Gospels recorded that. And so I thought, you know, certainly these are just four isolated recordings of the resurrection in the New Testament. Certainly I won't find the resurrection of Jesus Christ anywhere else in the New Testament. And so you know what I did? I kept looking. So I made my way to the book of Acts. I went from John into the book of Acts. And by the time I had gotten to the second chapter, I found that Peter had already preached about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I kept going and I found Peter once again preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in chapter 4. 
And then I made my way into the book of Romans, and in chapter 6, I found that Paul said that Christ died as the payment for our sins, and he made us alive through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In 1 Corinthians, I found the irrefutable proof that he had been resurrected. In 1 Corinthians, I found that there was irrefutable proof that Jesus Christ actually had been resurrected from the dead. Let me tell you what I mean. When I made my way to chapter 15, this is what I found in verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And so I continued reading, and when I got to verse 7, I found that then he appeared to James, then he appeared to all the apostles, and then, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And this was Paul who said this. So there were hundreds of people who had seen him after his resurrection. Over 500 eyewitnesses that make it absolutely impossible for any logical conclusion that anything other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ had actually happened. There were 500 eyewitnesses. And so I moved on. And in 2 Corinthians, I discovered that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up. In the Galatians, I found that by Jesus and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In Ephesians, I saw the great might of God as he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. In Philippians, that Paul counted all his suffering and his righteousness as rubbish that he may know him and the power of his resurrection. In Colossians, it was God who raised him from the dead. In Thessalonians, it was his son whom he raised from the dead. In 1 Peter in chapter 1, it said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we certainly wouldn't want to leave out the last book of the Bible, and that is, of course, Revelation, where I found that Jesus Christ said this of Himself, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold... I'm alive forevermore. I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death, and I have the keys to Hades. So friends, my point is that the entire New Testament is filled with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not just something that's isolated to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's all through the New Testament. And if you were here with us on Friday night, you'll remember that we spent time discussing the cross and the death of Jesus Christ. But Easter Sunday is different. Easter Sunday is about the resurrection, isn't it? And it's everywhere in the pages of the New Testament. It's everywhere in Scripture. And somehow, and sometimes it troubles me to acknowledge that it seems that the most amazing truth of all, the most amazing truth of history, the very reason that we celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, somehow gets lost among the bunnies, the colored grass, the eggs, the candy, and the new clothes. And oh, by the way, let's go to church and remember that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. But like me, people love their celebrations of Easter. And as I think about it, it seems to me that as people celebrate Easter today, that they're really celebrating something other than the resurrection of Christ. I think most often all across America today that people are celebrating the newness of life and they're celebrating the joy of spring 
as the seasons change, as the cold, lifeless barrenness of winter is swallowed up now by the warmer weather, we hope soon, and, and the new life that typically begins in spring, I think people want to celebrate the newness of life, and they want to celebrate spring. And who could blame them? I mean, there are new leaves that are beginning to bud on the branches of our trees. It's about this time of year that the daffodils begin to show buds and we see that the tulips are beginning to develop buds and take blossom. And we're excited because we're exchanging the old, cold barrenness of winter for new green life, aren't we? I mean, the birds are out and the the little baby squirrels are all over my yard digging up holes and doing whatever they do. I'm going to take you to the book of Matthew this morning. And as we approach the Gospel of Matthew, I'm going to remind you of some things that you already know. First of all, Jesus died on Friday afternoon, you know that. And sometime after that, His body was prepared for burial and placed in the tomb that had been unused, and that all happened before sunset on Friday evening. The Bible tells us that He was there in the tomb for three days after His body had been prepared with the 75 pounds of aloes and perfumes. And then in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 62, this is what we read. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive that after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, and let his disciples, or, or lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell people that he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be even worse than the first. And so Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go and make it as secure as you can. And so they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard, an armed guard of men on that tomb. Now, This guard of soldiers who was watching the tomb, I want you to know these soldiers who were sent out by Pilate was a group of trained killers. They were soldiers who were trained to kill people. They understood the responsibility of being placed on guard. When a Roman soldier was given a duty to guard something, he knew that he could be executed if he failed to perform his duty flawlessly. And so it was very important to him. He understood the serious matter, the serious nature of this matter. And he understood how serious it was to guard the tomb well and to make sure that absolutely nothing happened and that nobody went in there to bother the body of Jesus. And so they sealed it with an official seal and they set these armed guards to stand there and to watch this tomb. But really early on Sunday morning, as the sun was beginning to pop up, It was still dark on the west side of the Mount of Olives, and it was just beginning to dawn. This is what happened in chapter 28, verse 2. Take a look at this. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and they became like dead men. So I want you to imagine this in your mind with me. Here are these guards, these trained assassins, these hardened, these seasoned killers, and they fall to the ground and they lay on the ground just like they were dead. And then as the women who were caring for Jesus arrive at the tomb, they had been making their way up the hill. And as they got there and they go in and out of the tomb, we hear absolutely nothing at all about these guards. It's nowhere in Scripture. 
We hear nothing else about the guards, not a single word. These soldiers had seen Jesus, these killers who had seen Jesus a couple of days before and testified on their own that he was dead. These soldiers who had been there, these men who had killed many people on their own, as Jesus hung on the cross Friday, the guard took his spear and rammed it up underneath the ribcage of Jesus Christ. He pierced his heart. He knew that he had done that because the water from the lining of his heart came gushing out. The blood came gushing out. This experienced killer knew that Jesus Christ was dead. He knew it. He had seen a lot of dead people and he knew what they looked like and he said, that guy is dead. And here he is, standing at the tomb of this dead man. And now, that same Jesus whose heart gushed the blood and water, he wasn't dead anymore. This guard stood there and when he saw the angel and he fell to his face, he knew that that same Jesus was not dead anymore. He knew that that Jesus was alive. These guards had seen the angel who came and rolled back the stone. They had felt the earthquake and you know what they did? They panicked. What do you think you would have done if you were a guard and you were there and an angel came down, the earth shook violently, the stone rolled back, what do you think you would have done? You would have panicked, wouldn't you? They did what was right. They did what was normal. They panicked, which is exactly what I would have done, and they passed out. They dropped to the ground as if they were dead. And when they finally got enough strength, when they finally regained enough strength in their legs to stand up, you know what they did? A very logical thing. They took off running, which is also exactly what I would have done. They got to their feet and they took off running. And I want you to see what happened when they did that. Take a look at verse 11. When they were going, and we're speaking here of the women who had come to the tomb, had had seen the stone rolled away, and they were leaving now to tell the disciples. So when those women were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, and they said, go tell people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and we'll keep you out of trouble. And so the guards took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. As I read through this, I thought, man, that's really kind of dumb. You know, think about that. What a foolish idea. Doesn't it seem like there are a lot of obvious holes in the story of these guards? I mean, first of all, if I'm one of the guards... I'm going to be afraid to tell anyone that I was sleeping while I was on guard duty. That's the very first problem that I've got. Because the discipline, which could include death, was very, very strict and everybody would fear that. So I'm not going to tell everybody that I've been sleeping while I was on guard duty. But secondly, let's just suppose that I had. And I want you to think this through. If the guards were asleep when the body disappeared, how would they know who took it? Does that make sense? How can they testify as to what happened while they were asleep? They would have had no idea what was going on. They wouldn't know who took him. They would only know that when they woke up, he was gone. Isn't that right? I mean, who's going to believe their story? And what about the chief priest? I want you to think about this. 
If the guards have, have just told you the story of this huge earthquake, if the guards have told you as a chief priest about the angel coming down and rolling back the stone and Jesus not being there, don't you think that you would say to yourself, hmm, maybe this guy actually is the Messiah? As a religious leader, don't you think he would have said that? I mean, only a few days earlier they had told Pilate, this was on Friday, that Jesus had claimed that he was going to rise from the dead three days after he died. This was the claim they made to Pilate. And now here it is, three days after Jesus has died, and guess what he's done? He's gotten up and he's walked out. If you're the religious leaders, don't you think you might think to yourself, wow, he rose from the dead? That's exactly what he said he was going to do. He did it in three days? That's the exact same time frame in which he said he would rise from the dead. Maybe he actually is the Messiah. But no, not these guys. Their reaction was to lie and to cover it up by paying people off. But I want to tell you something. You see, that's how it is for people who are desperately locked in their unbelief. They absolutely refuse to receive the truth no matter how many witnesses there are, no matter how many people have seen it, they absolutely refuse to receive the truth because that's not what they want to believe. Certainly, that's not how we are. But friends, I think that for people who are locked in unbelief, even the most compelling eyewitness testimony does not drive them to reconsider their position on Jesus Christ. But listen, if the testimony of the eyewitnesses is true, if it is in fact true that Jesus has risen from the dead, how are you going to conceal the fact that He's alive? How are you going to stop that from happening? You can't, can you? And guess what? They didn't. Because after He had been resurrected, the Bible tells us that too many people had seen Him alive. That there were a lot of people that could testify that they had seen Him. They could testify that He was up, that He was walking around, that He was alive. As I mentioned earlier, there were more than 500 people who had seen Him and could testify to that very thing. So there were too many witnesses. They couldn't conceal that. His resurrection could not be concealed. So why would you fight it? Well, I thought about that. I mean, why would you not just acknowledge that He was the Christ? Why would you not just acknowledge that He had risen from the dead? Why would you not embrace Him if you know that He's risen from the dead? And I think that's a great question, don't you? I mean, with so much proof, why wouldn't you just admit it? Why wouldn't you just say, yes, He must have risen from the dead. We made a huge mistake. Well, they wouldn't do it for the same reason that people don't do it today. Can I tell you that? Here's the problem. And this is why people refuse to accept Him today. Because if he's alive, he is who he says he is. If he's alive, he's God in human flesh, according to John 1.14. If he's alive, then he was sent to seek and save the lost, according to Luke 19.10. His blood then was the new covenant which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins in Matthew 26. If Jesus is alive, if this is true, then the old system which was used for the forgiveness of sin was no longer needed. If he was alive that day, then the old religious system was obsolete. And these men who decided to lie about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these who attempted to cover up his resurrection by paying off the soldiers, listen, they were the old system. They were the old way of doing things. And so if their religious system was obsolete, then they were obsolete. Do you see that? 
If their religious system was defunct, then they were defunct. If there was a new system, then nobody needed the old system anymore. Their old way of life was gone. Their honor, their respect was gone. Friends, listen, we get comfortable with the old system. We get comfortable with the way that things go. And that's exactly what these men did. They ran the old system. They were in charge of it. They profited from it. They took money from it. They received their self-worth from it. People looked at them and said, oh, look at this this powerful religious leader. What a pious and holy man he must be. And they just ate that up. They loved it. They were very comfortable and they did not want to make the adjustment to anything new. Do you see what I'm saying? Listen. And they especially didn't want to make the adjustment to anything new if it meant that they weren't in charge anymore and that Jesus Christ was. On Friday night, we talked about the death of Jesus Christ we were all given a, a small rock which represented all of our faults and our sin. And we know from Scripture that the wages of sin is death, don't we? Isn't that what Romans 6.23 tells us? That the wages of sin is death. So listen, either Jesus suffered that day the mistreatment of man and the wrath of God as our substitute for sin or you will substitute or I'm sorry, you will suffer the wrath of God for your sin. That's just a fact of the Bible. Now listen, in a symbolic statement, at the end of service, we took that rock and we dropped it into a bucket of water symbolizing that in the death of Christ, our sins are forgiven. And we were saying that we acknowledge, we recognize that Christ's death was for us and in place of our death. But listen, You need to understand that that's not where it ends. It's not enough for you to say, Christ died. It's not enough for you to say, because Christ died, I can be forgiven because my sin died with Him. But I want you to see what happens in 2 Corinthians 5.15. Look at this. And He died for all. So that's true. We know that Christ died. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. So friends, listen. If Jesus Christ died for you, you should no longer live for yourselves. That's what Paul is saying. You should no longer live for yourselves but for Him. And I want you to know that's the rub. That's the real problem. That was the problem with the religious leaders of Christ's time, and that's the problem with everyone today who refuses to serve Jesus Christ. The problem is that we are comfortable in our systems. The problem is that we are comfortable with our sin. The problem is we actually really enjoy our sin. We exist to satisfy ourselves and we're unapologetic for it. We like satisfying ourselves. We feel like we're able to control our own destiny. We feel like we can find our own self-worth from how comfortable we make ourselves or from all of the things that we're able to accomplish and all of the things that we have in life. We're comfortable that way. We like it that way and we're going to stay that way. We don't want anything new. We don't want to adjust to anything new, and especially if it means that we have to give up control of our own lives and hand that control over to this Jesus Christ who lived thousands of years ago. 
Why would I commit myself to him? And so what happens is people refuse to acknowledge that their old systems are broken. They refuse to acknowledge that their old systems just don't work. They refuse to acknowledge that the old system is unable to bring them true fulfillment. And so they walk around in misery. They walk around in anxiety because they can't find the fulfillment that they're looking for. And so then what those people do is they try to cover up the truth of Jesus Christ. And they deliberately refuse to acknowledge the truth of Jesus Christ so they can live in their old system. That's what they do. Because they want to find their own fulfillment. And so they'll cover up the truth of Jesus Christ by saying, oh, that's all right, the Bible is just a bunch of myths. It's a bunch of fantasies. It was written thousands of years ago by a bunch of guys who were unable to logic, illiterate, And then they ridicule those people who choose to serve Jesus Christ. And in doing that, what they're doing is they're making a mockery of God. See, they may try to fill it. They they, they have this void in their lives. They try to fill this void by doing all of these different things. They try and find, they try to fill this void by trying to increase their income. Maybe they're trying to advance their career to fill this void that they have in their lives. They may even try to fill the the void that's created by practicing religion, by going to church once a week or twice a week. But they never really find fulfillment because fulfillment is only found when they embrace Jesus Christ and they refuse to acknowledge Him as the resurrected Savior. They refuse to. So they can't find that kind of fulfillment. Fulfillment in life can only be found, true fulfillment, in embracing Jesus Christ. And so people try to find their satisfaction in living for themselves. They try to find their satisfaction in doing all the things that make them feel good. They think may bring some level of temporary happiness to them. And so they go from relationship to relationship to relationship and problem after problem after problem seeking what makes them feel great at the time because they're living for themselves. That's the old system. And we refuse to live for Him who died for us and who was raised again. I want you to think about that. We said earlier that we made Easter into a celebration of exchanging the old for the new, exchanging winter for spring. I think for those who recognize that Christ died as a substitute in our place and those who determined they'll no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and was raised again, I think that's absolutely true. It's a new season. And they are exchanging the old for the new. Anyone who's believed that that Christ is who He said He is, anyone who has believed that He is who He said He is, and and anyone who has believed that Christ paid for their sin and His death, and those people who believe that are in Christ, those who believe are those who are in Christ, the Bible tells us. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, friends, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. So listen, when we understand that Jesus Christ died as our substitute, we can understand that His death became our death. Do you understand? When we understand that Jesus died as our substitute, then in His resurrection, His life became our new life. So with the death of Christ, friends, the old has passed away and all things have become new with His resurrection. And what that means is that all the things that used to be of value to us are no longer of value to us. The old system doesn't matter to us as much as it used to. All the old ideas, they're replaced with new thoughts. They're replaced with new ideas. 
All the old plans of self-seeking and of self-satisfaction are replaced by new plans to bring honor and satisfaction to God. The things that we used to love are no longer precious to us. Our old desires are replaced by new desires. Our old beliefs disappear and the new things take their place. Friends, when Jesus rose from the dead, I want you to know that He made it possible for you to have a new beginning. He made it possible for us to start all over. He made it possible because now God can plant new desires. He can plant new passions. He can plant new truths in your hearts and in your minds. But we understand that if the new is to come, you have to allow the old to pass away, don't you? Consider that. Religious leaders were so intent on holding on to the old that they completely ignored and lied about the new. In fact, they tried to cover it up. They bribed people. I just want to encourage you. I know that it's comfortable to love the old. I know that it's comfortable to hang on to what you've known for all of these years. But I want to encourage you. Don't love the old so much that you cling to it so tightly that you miss out on the new. Don't love the winter so much that you refuse to embrace the spring. Don't become so entrenched in your daily, temporary, earthly lives. Don't become so engaged in your own temporary problems. Don't become so engaged in your own temporary entertainment and your own temporary satisfaction that you miss the opportunity to experience new life altogether and to experience new hope. When we think about Easter, we think about the resurrection after three days in the grave. We think about the angel. We think about the stone. We think about the women and the disciples coming to an empty tomb. We've heard the story, I think, so many times that it actually can become a little bit mundane for us. It can become commonplace and that the reality of the new beginning can actually escape us. And I think what happens is Easter is no more to us than another Bible story at some point. But I want you to understand that it's more than that. Easter is so much more than just another Bible story that you celebrate once a year. It's more than a Bible story that you've heard many times. Because in Jesus Christ, God visited mankind to bring Him mercy, to bring Him grace, and an opportunity, friends, for a new beginning. He brought an opportunity for a new beginning. Listen, many people go to church every single Easter because it's thought to be one of the most religious holidays of the year, and we just go there on Easter. And I'm afraid that many times, after having gone to church on Easter Sunday, people walk out the doors having never committed themselves to let go of the old and embrace the new that the resurrection of Jesus Christ stands for. And then they go home to their ham and their potatoes and with any luck, their cheesecake. And life just resumes. And so if you're here this morning and you feel the tug of Jesus Christ on your heart, that you've been clinging to the old and that you know that you need to be reaching for the newness of life that's in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to exchange it now before it's too late. Don't wait. As we come to our time of prayer this morning, I believe that there are probably people here who know that the Holy Spirit is poking you. He knows that the Holy Spirit is speaking directly to you. And if that's the case, I want to just 
encourage you to respond. I want to encourage you to not be callous, not allow your hearts to look the other way, but to be responsive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you to exchange the old system of your lives, the old patterns, the old habits that have made you comfortable, and to give yourself over to the newness of life that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And if you felt your heart being challenged to let go of the old and to become new and to embrace the new, committing yourself to live for Jesus Christ, I want you to know that right now is the right time. Right now is the right time for you to pray. And I would encourage you to do that, to just pray and to ask God to make you new and to forgive you and to give you new life. And I would encourage you to do that. Don't allow yourselves to have today just be another Easter where you look for the candy, wear the new clothes, you go to church, you go home, you eat your ham, you play with the kids, and life goes on as it always does. Take the opportunity, seize the day, and ask God to exchange the old for new in your life. Father, I thank You for Jesus Christ. And I thank You for His work of substitution. I thank You that because Jesus Christ faced the wrath of God that we have the opportunity to experience forgiveness, mercy, grace, and peace in our lives. And I pray, God, for those who are here this morning whose hearts have been challenged to let go of the old and to embrace the new. And Lord, for those who believe that You are the Son of God, those who have believed that You have died in our place and that You rose again, I pray for those people this morning, God, that You would make them a new creation. I pray, God, that You would give them new desires. I pray that You'd give them new passions and new truths to replace their old desires and their old way of life. According to Your Word, Lord, I pray that You would let the old pass away and that their lives be governed now by the new things of Jesus Christ. Let their hearts be filled with a desire and a boldness to live for You through the power of the Holy Spirit to honor Jesus Christ, the One who died for them. Let this, Lord, not be a day where we come in to celebrate because it's a holiday that we always celebrate once a year. And then let us walk away not unchanged. But God, let this be the day where we find new life in Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' name.